Hello, I'm Chris Kreitcho, and this is Neurostation, a show about the Rust programming language and the people who use it. This is a bonus episode, How the Sausage Gets Made. Before we dive in, I'm really pleased and grateful that Parody continues to sponsor the show. And it's because they want to hire you to come work with them in Rust. Parody is advancing the state of the art in decentralized technology, and they're using Rust to do it, leaning hard on its trifecta of performance, reliability, and productivity. They're building cutting-edge tech in areas like WebAssembly and peer-to-peer networking. Two of the larger projects they're working on are Substrate, a framework for building blockchains, and Polkadot, a platform leveraging blockchain tech for scaling and interoperability in decentralized systems. If any of that sounds interesting, including working in Rust every day, check out their jobs at parity.io slash jobs. The second thing to cover before I dig into this bonus content is some Rust conferences. First, and most urgent as I post this, is Rust Lab, which is a conference to be held in Florence, Italy, this June 28th through 29th. I call it the most urgent of all of these because the CFP, the Call for Proposals, closes tomorrow, March 24th. I meant to have this episode out a week ago, and it's literally already March 24th today in large parts of Europe as I record. My bad. Second, and with its own open CFP, is RustConf, which is being held August 22nd through 23rd in Portland, Oregon again. And once again, I'm on the program committee, and once again, we'd love to have you submit. It was genuinely a great conference last year, and I hope to have an equally great program this year. And of course, I'm looking forward to being in Portland again, as I was just this past week for EmberConf. It's a really fun city. However, even more exciting to me than that is the third conference I have to mention, and I don't think I could possibly be more excited. Colorado Gold Rust that's quite the pun, is a brand new regional Rust conference being held in Denver, Colorado. Yes, Denver, Colorado, less than an hour away from me on September 20th and 21st. I will be there, and I will almost certainly be there in a very official new Rustation way. Stay tuned for details on that as we hammer them down. Finally, Rust Belt Rust is being held this year in Dayton, Ohio in October, on October 18th through 19th. The calls for proposals for Colorado Gold Rust and Rust Belt Rust are not yet open, but I will certainly mention on the show when they are, and I hope to see you at at least one of those. Okay, so today's episode is a little unusual for the show, but I get asked questions about how I make the show and about a number of small but important decisions I've made along the way often enough that I thought it would be worth setting this all down in one place so that I can just have an easy place to point to to reference when those questions come up, as inevitably they do over and over. Before I dive in, though, I want to note that what follows is my approach and process as it has evolved over the course of the show and as a relatively successful show, financially speaking, with a solid listener base. It is not I emphasize not my recommendation of how you should produce a show if you decide to start one today. If you're interested in my thoughts that direction, you should check out the two guest lectures I delivered on exactly that subject at North Carolina State University back in the fall of 2016, both of which are linked in the show notes. Also, as I dig in, 
I have a confession. I drafted this episode all the way back in January because I knew that I would be super busy right now in March because I taught a workshop on TypeScript again at EmberConf this past week. And last year, trying to get out any episodes in March just about killed me. But that leads me into the first bit of how this show gets made. These episodes are all scripted top to bottom. Many of you already realize this, but I do get surprised comments to that effect occasionally. And this wasn't always the case. The first few episodes of the show, I just wrote outlines and winged it. That was not a good idea. I managed okay, but if you go back and listen to those episodes, you can tell I'm winging it and not in a good way. There were, in the end, two big problems with winging it for me. The first was that I had to record basically as soon as I finished learning something, because there was no way that an outline alone was going to do the job even a few days later, much less a week later, much less a month later. And my goal from the start has been to make this a top-notch resource that would have years of value to people. And the deeper into the language I got, the less comfortable I was with just saying things off the top of my head instead of writing down exactly the right thing to make sure I got it right. So, a few episodes in, I started scripting the episode top to bottom. And again, you can tell, of course you can tell, it's obvious that I'm reading a script, both in the sense that it's obviously not just off the cuff, it's a little bit less natural, but also in the sense that I can actually be more clear and more precise as a result. And I hope that trade-off is worth it. Unfortunately, it doesn't actually protect me from making mistakes ever. You can even check out a few recent episodes and note that there are corrections in the show notes. What it does mean is that those mistakes are much less likely to happen, and they're typically much smaller. The second problem I had in doing it off the cuff was the editing job. Here's the thing. When I edit a podcast, I really really edit a podcast. I cut out ums and uhs and long pauses and coughs and clicks and mouth smacks and you name it. If I stumble over something, I nearly always back up and say it again. If when I'm reading a script, something just sounds wrong, I back up and say it again. But those kind of stumbles and things which made me need to edit happened a lot more when I was recording everything off the cuff unscripted. And that meant that I had to spend a lot more time editing the show rather than doing literally anything else. Now, I enjoy editing podcasts. It's actually really pleasant work for me, but it's not something I want to spend any time doing that I don't need to be doing. Scripting lets me make a trade-off here. I spend a lot more time in the upfront preparation for the show, but I spend a lot less time editing. Also, I get scripts this way that I can make available with the episodes for people who prefer reading or who need to be able to read it over listening. That ends up being really important. I don't need to pay for transcripts. Now, given that kind of prep work, producing the show is actually pretty straightforward, at least most of the time. I'm just recording off of a script. And when I do have guests for interviews, they're all pretty easy to coordinate with. We just set up a Skype call or something like that, and I split the guest audio apart from mine so I can do the same kind of careful editing on both sides of the recording. I'm on a Mac, which means there are a bunch of really amazing tools for these kinds of things. In particular, Audio Hijack and Loopback from Rogue Amoeba have been absolute game changers for me when dealing with recording. Audio Hijack also supports streaming, so I often hook this up to an IceCast server and broadcast my live recording sessions to the internet sometimes. 
not tonight. I didn't feel like messing with it and telling the internet about it, but I do that. And in the future, if I can find a regular recording schedule, I would like that to be a thing people can just tune into at a regular time. Now, when I'm recording, whether alone or with guests, I also take note of any obvious moments where I need to make an edit. I just write down the timestamp of my recording from the audio hijack window in a notes app. Those are just a markdown style to-do list item like you can write in GitHub. I have actually done that multiple times in this episode already, but you can't tell because I edit it. If I'm recording with guests, I also write down anything they mentioned that seems interesting enough to link to so that I can put it in the show notes. For solo episodes, I actually build everything I need for the show notes during the scripting process. I add links to the script whenever I mention a particular topic, and as I mentioned recently, I built a small tool in Rust to extract those links from the script to drop into the show notes when I'm done. In teaching episodes, I also spend the time building out the example code. This works both in helping make the show a better teaching resource and also in making sure that I actually understand things correctly. Once I have all the audio available, I do the editing work. I start by pre-processing the audio with a very, very fancy tool called Isotope RX, which is worth its weight in gold for dealing with things like noise removal, echo removal, and cleaning up weird artifacts. It's amazing, genuinely. But while it's worth its weight in gold, you will also pay for your own weight in gold to get it. It's very expensive. It's worth it if you're doing this at a semi-professional level like I am, but I would not exactly commend it if you're just starting out. Once I have pre-processed the audio, I switch into editing. And because I've usually written down most or all of the major edits I need to make, this does not take me very long. I use Logic Pro 10, and it gets the job done I would say just fine. It's pretty obvious that Logic is not designed for podcast production, but you can use it that way effectively. When I'm traveling, I sometimes also use Ferrite, an iOS app which is easily the best value for money in the space. Full purchase for all of its features is something like $20, and it's actually a fantastic podcast editing studio app. My editing workflow is basically to cut out and rearrange as necessary for any of the flubs I made along the way, and to take notes on things that I missed in the original recording process, and then use Logic's handy strip silence tool to remove any particularly long gaps. For example, if I needed to stop and fill a water bottle or something like that. I then listen through the whole episode, and I pull together all of those long gaps. I add in the musical cues for the intro and outro. I add the sponsor read music if there's a sponsor. And I also here turn mistakes into bloopers, at least if they're actually good or funny. This is also the stage where I add chapter marks into the audio. Usually those just correspond directly to the section headings in the script, and they get exported with the WAV file I create when I'm done. Then I use a free tool called Forecast to convert that WAV file into an MP3 file, which has nice chapters in it, and I upload that to my host. That's it for the processing, the production phase. Speaking of hosting, though, how do I publish the show? Well, you can see the website itself is just Ruststock, of course, and I talked about why I did it that way all the way back in the very first episode of the show. But if you know how podcasts work, you know that I need an RSS feed and one that's set up to include downloads. That's what makes a podcast. 
Rustalk doesn't even know what RSS is, much less how to generate RSS for a podcast. I could write the RSS feed by hand, but that would be painful and error-prone, and happily, there's an app for that. Specifically, I use a tool called Feeder, which generates RSS feeds with just about every option you can imagine, including for podcasting. I basically just copy the show notes material into a standalone markdown file, and I pipe that right into the notes section for each episode in Feeder. And then my build process, which is just a simple make file, pulls the generated feed output into the right location in Rustock output. That output, the show HTML and the RSS feed, is all just hosted via GitHub pages. The show audio I host with Backblaze's B2 service. It's effectively an Amazon S3 replacement. Backblaze is incredibly reliable and extremely low cost and, of interest to me, not Amazon. I've talked on my other podcast, Winning Slowly, about why I don't use Amazon for anything for These purposes, suffice it to say, that Backblaze is great and cheaper and not Amazon. That setup, though, is one of my favorite things about podcasting. All you actually need for it is simple file hosting and an RSS feed. It's all just built on open web tech. And that leads me into the last part of this discussion. An answer to the question I get pretty regularly on Twitter and via email. Hey, can you add the show to Google Play Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher? And the answer is I could but I won't. I'm not particularly ideological about very many things in software. I end up saving that for the theological side of my life. But one thing I'm deeply committed to is the open web. I believe very deeply that the open web is an amazing thing. It is messy, and there are many nasty things that exist on it. But the fact that I can put up a blog or a podcast using free open technologies which are available to everyone is amazing. The fact that people from all over the world can listen to this because of that still amazes me. It still astounds me, and I still think it's wonderful. And podcast, like blogging, is actually a very simple technology. It's just file hosting and RSS. Unfortunately, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify's podcast services all aim to make something very different out of podcasting. They're not the only ones, of course. Lots of people are doing this now. But those three are the ones with the most influence, and these days especially Google Play and Spotify. From a technical perspective, all of those services ingest your RSS feed and then throw it away. They rehost and recompress your audio. That annoys me first and foremost because I've made extremely careful and considered decisions about my audio. I don't want anyone else mucking with it. But secondly, and more importantly, really... They do that primarily because it gives them more insight and control over their users' behaviors, and there's money to be made there. There are technical benefits to them for doing it that way. They get control over the streaming source. They know that it won't go down because it's their own servers and so on. But the deeper reasons are those economic reasons. And that really is the lead-in for the final reason why I refuse to put any of my podcasts on those services or on any service like them which might appear in the future. They're interested in effectively monetizing my content and your listening habits for themselves. Not really for you and for me, even insofar as they have platforms for creators. In particular, they want to do it by analyzing everyone's listening habits and trying to deliver more targeted ads. We've all seen how well that has worked out for the rest of the internet. I'm not on board with that model. And in each of those cases, Stitcher, 
Google Play and Spotify clearly want to be the source. They want to be the sole or primary gatekeepers. They want to be middlemen for all of podcasting. I have no interest, none, in contributing to the centralization of yet another open web standard. In short, we don't need a Facebook for podcasting. Now, to be clear, I said that quite strongly, but I don't think it's wrong for anyone to use those services, per se, and I don't think it's wrong, per se, for other podcasters to make different choices about these particular trade-offs. Depending on your podcasting needs, it may be worth dealing with those downsides. It might be part of a larger play to be financially viable. You might be part of a podcast network that simply is on those platforms. It may even be that those trade-offs don't bother you in the same ways that they do me. That is legitimately fine. This is a complicated space when it comes to all the moral reasoning in play. This is the place I draw the line. If Google, Spotify, and Stitcher, and anyone like them, decide to work the same way everyone else does, with the open web, with the same standard technologies that all other podcast players use, they're welcome to my shows. Because at the end of the day, it's just static files and RSS. But as long as they're trying to do an end run around the open web for better ad monetization, I'm out. Now, that's it for this bonus episode. I do hope it was interesting, and if it piqued your curiosity or encouraged a budding interest in podcasting yourself, I do encourage you to check out the podcasting guest lectures I mentioned at the top of the show. They're in the list of bonus episodes at winningslowly.org slash seasonbonus.html, and for ease of reference, I've linked them both in the show notes. Likewise, if the ethics concerns of this particular episode are interesting to you, my podcast Winning Slowly is also likely to be of interest. This season, my co-host and I are basically arguing it out every single episode, aiming to find a third way that is neither techno-utopianism, nor radical techno-skepticism, nor something just sort of halfway in the middle of them. This month's $10 or more sponsors included Ola Fadei, Nick Stevens, Rob Chuk, Embark Studios, Alexander Payne, Ryan Osiel, Matt Rudder, Brian Stitt, Graham Willidall, Daniel Collin, Olushe Shonaya, Daniel Mason, Jaco Dinar, Rafe Levine, Peter Tillemans, Soren Bremer Schmidt, Evan Stahl, Adam Green, Anthony Deschamps, Brian McAllister, Joseph Schrag, Jonathan Knapp, John Rudnick, Benjamin Manns, David Carroll, Benam Esfabo, Jason Bowen, Paul Naranja, Dan Abrams, Chick, Nick, Gidio, Martin Huschober, Scott Moeller, Jerome Froelich, Chris Palmer, James Higgins II, Nathan Scully, Ramon Buckland, Arun Kulshreshtha, Michael McDonnell, Andrew Dirksen, Johan Anderson, and Nicholas Pochet. You can sponsor the show at patreon.com slash neurostation or via other services listed on the show website, neurostation.com. You'll also find show notes, including links to everything I talk about, scripts, code samples, and interview transcripts there. Notes for this episode are at newrustation.com slash show underscore notes slash bonus slash underscore 14. Please do recommend the show to others if you enjoy it, whether that's in person, via your favorite podcast directory, or in whatever social media online. You can contact me directly at Chris Kreitcher or at NeuroStation on Twitter or by sending me an email at hello at NeuroStation.com. Until next time, happy coding. Happy coding.